Well, brethren, what is your real goal? As we enter a new year, it's time to think about that. It's important to set goals. One of Mr. Armstrong's main points and his points of success that he brought out is to set the right goal. And that's what we've all got to learn to do. You can set goals toward the final goal. And that's important as well. But what is your real goal? We need to set goals. And you young people need to set goals of perhaps getting a good education or vocational training in a particular area and driving toward that goal. Finding the right mate, not just anyone that comes along that's handsome or pretty. A lot of times girls in Ambassador College, as I would counsel, they'd say, that fellow's cute. I'd say, well, a little puppy dog is cute. But a man had better be able to support you, take care of you, set the right example as the spiritual leader of the house, and he better be a lot more than cute, okay? So be careful what you go for in your goals. But anyway, we need to set goals and find the right mate, and we need also, of course, to find the true purpose of life and fulfill that purpose. That should be the biggest of goals. What is your supreme goal, actually, above all others? Above all others. Turn back to Colossians, if you would, chapter 3 in your New Testament. Colossians, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, If then you were raised with Christ, in other words, if you've come up from the, as we would say, the waters of baptism, you've been baptized, seek those things where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Seek those things above, as I skipped over. Seek those things above, not just things on the earth. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't be focused all the time on things on the earth. And yet most of us are. And in Mr. Gwynn's excellent sermonette, he pointed out how we need to be careful not to be distracted. And we can be distracted by all kinds of things on the earth. We can want a bigger television or a new car and... We should be, some women are so distracted about keeping their house perfect or keeping their hair perfect or their little children or like Martha, Martha, involved in so much serving and just activities. Mr. Armstrong used to even warn us ministers. He said, fellows, we can get so involved in the administration. How's the income and how are we spending it and who's going to be in this new department and where's the office going to be and where do we put everybody? All this stuff that we can neglect our own personal Bible study and prayer and focus on walking with God. He said we've got to be sure we're not distracted on all that stuff. We want to do our job, but sometimes even in God's work, you can be doing something, as Mr. Gwynn said, that seems important, and it is important, but you must not be distracted from the supreme goal by things like that. Set your things on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died if you were buried in baptism, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You don't have any life of yourself. That ought to be your real intent, that you've given your life to God, and you mean it. And we better be sure we mean it. We have a lot of people in living that play church. They come to church, their attitudes are right, they put on their Sabbath smile, but they're not converted. They just hang around. They're here. Their heart is not in God's work. When Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, if we're deeply converted, we ought to consider that a life belongs to Christ. We don't have any life. None of us knew that perfectly. We understand that, but that's our goal, and that's what we ought to be driving for. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. What do you think about? 
What do you set your mind on? Above all other things. I've given you this saying that I read in a book one time and maybe paraphrased it. But the things that you, uh, that dominate, the things that dominate your mind are what you value most. Some of you heard me give that statement. The things which dominate your mind are what you value most. What do young men think about? One of our leading evangelists said years ago, what do the fellows in the college really think about, most of them? And most of our kids in the church, young men in high school, college, whatever. Girls and sports and uh, uh, excitement and girls and travel and girls and cars and girls and music and girls. (laughs) Every other one was girls. Now that, as you may notice, if you're real sharp, (laughs) you don't have to be very sharp to get that. But anyway, that's normal. Normal young men, you know, they think about this, but then they watch this pretty girl, watch how she looks and how she moves. Wow, she's pretty and all this. This is going through his mind all the time. This is a teenage mentality. And a lot of young men take years to get out of that. So that's not the things God wants to blow our minds to. What do you think about? Be honest. What dominates your mind? Is it your career, your job, your business, making money, having things, the latest movie, the latest songs, interesting people, girls, fellas, dates, fun, success, children, sex? What dominates your mind all the time? What dominates your mind? You have to be honest with yourself. You don't need to tell me just... Think about it yourself. What do you allow your minds to focus on? And you brethren who may see this later around the world, what do you focus your mind on most of the time? Let's all be honest with ourselves and with God. What does God say we should focus our mind on? Things above. The coming kingdom of God, the government of God, the whole purpose of human existence. And before I get further in the sermon, I want to comment on One key thing that you ought to believe, and yet I know many of you do not fully, and the world talks about it, but does not do it. Jesus Christ said several different ways, but I'm just giving you two of them. In Luke 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, not just some, every word of God. People don't do that. The Methodists don't do that. I grew up in the Methodist church. The Baptists don't do that. The Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Catholics, and so on. You know that. God says it's a shame for a woman to speak in church. And they have these women preachers all the time in these churches. God says homosexuality is an abomination. And yet now, most of the mainstream Protestant churches have begun or already talking about not just not putting them out, but ordaining lesbians and queers. They're talking about ordaining these sexual perverts right into their ministry. Yet they say, oh, we believe in the Word of God. Oh, sure. Sure they do. And even the Catholic Pope said, you can search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you'll find not, not find one line authorizing the observance of Sunday. Saturday is the day that the Bible prescribes. But we, the church, changed it, he goes on to explain. These great theologians in the Protestant seminaries, and they know that. They're not stupid. They know how to read. But what do they do? Well, this stuff about women's teachers, that's just Paul's opinion from his age. He was just a product of, let's rip that out. 
This stuff about homosexuality, let's rip that out. This stuff about the Sabbath, that was just the old Jews, let's rip that out. This stuff about not killing, well, we got to fight and go to war, so let's rip that out. This other stuff, this other stuff, this other stuff. And all through the Bible, they rip it out, rip it out. And what do they have left? Nothing. They have left the pagan traditions of men. They don't really follow the Bible at all. Most of you know that. If you really have thought about it, there's practically nothing. You say, well, the Baptists believe in baptism. Well, in a sense they do, but in another way they don't. Because they don't understand the real meaning of baptism. And they don't understand that you're to really repent as an adult and give your life to God in total surrender. They don't know what that means, so they don't do it. And like the Seventh-day Church of God and many Baptist and Pentecostal groups, they rush the young kids down to the water at age 12 or 14 before they even know what they're doing and get them all excited in some camp meeting or uh, uh, revival and dump them in the water. They don't know what they're doing. So they don't really understand baptism. The Seventh-day Adventists understand the idea of keeping the Sabbath, but a lot of them don't really keep it if you can talk to Adventists. And then they put Ellen G. White between them and the Bible and point after point after point. Dozens of points. So where are you left with? You're left with the true church of God, the little flock, and to some extent the tiny flock as we know. You're to live by every word of God. Let's not be afraid to do that. Apply it to you, to me, all of us. Back in Second Timothy, brethren, if you turn back there now, again, a very famous scripture, as you all know, but let's turn there talking to the young evangelist Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many of the good Methodists and Baptists suffer persecution? Sometimes in some far-off land, but practically not. They're the majority. They blend right into this society. All will suffer persecution. They're not living that way, so they don't suffer persecution. And maybe we're not living it as forcefully as we should. Perhaps this article on homosexuality will bring a little bit of persecution. We need to have one a little later. So I was telling our men on abortion. And that may bring more persecution. Not that we're trying to get persecution, but we've got to get stronger. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their sins. God says in Isaiah 58, 1, we've got to do that. That's a Christ command. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. They're not going to get better. Are we going to get better leaders? Are we going to get better preachers? Deceiving and being deceived. The head of the theology department here in a local university told me that he knows many of the top leaders in the theological departments and top theologians all over the United States by name has visited with them many times. He said the vast majority of the top theologians in this country and in Great Britain don't believe the Bible at all. And most of them are, are atheists, he said. And his wife corrected him. She says, well, John, his name is not John. <laughs> but she said, you mean agnostics. Well, okay, not atheists, but agnostics. In other words, they don't say there isn't a God, but they're not sure. That agnostic is not even sure there is a real God. He knows that. If you look at a recent Newsweek article, it brought out how the head of the theology department, this is not some secret I'm telling up here, it's in Newsweek magazine up here in uh, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Their head of theology has admitted in this Newsweek interview that he no longer believes in God and in the Bible. Yet from what I understand, he's still there. He's teaching other young ministers and he's not even sure there is a God. All through this world, we have people in that kind of high levels of theology that don't believe in God at all, 
or they certainly don't believe in the God of the Bible. And if they think they believe in the God of the Bible, they don't do what he says or tell what he says. We're deceived. The whole world is deceived, Jesus said. So we've got to really understand that and be willing to stand up and be different, brethren, in all these ways. But you, he told Timothy, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures? The New Testament was not yet written. The theologians know that. It wasn't yet written. What Holy Scriptures? The Old Testament, as we call it. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture. And back in Second Peter chapter 3, just before he died, one of the latest letters written in the New Testament, Second Peter 3, Paul told us that Paul's writings were Scripture. If you read those last few verses, you'll see that. He acknowledged that Paul's writings were Scripture. Peter wrote Scripture, Paul wrote Scripture, and they all refer back to the writings of Moses and Daniel and the writers of the Old Testament as inspired of God, as holy Scriptures. All Scriptures given by inspiration of God. God breathed as it is in the, Hebrew, in the Greek and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. A lot of people don't like to be corrected. They don't like us to say, well, you're wrong. No, but we are wrong. We've got to recognize that if something hits us, let's change. I've got to change more. You've got to change more. I want to be there. I hope you want to be there. Take correction from the Bible for instruction and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does that indicate you've got to have the Apocrypha and other books that are not in the Bible? God, if you'll understand, the correct order has four, seven times seven, 49 books. It's like he signed his name in there in a whole bunch of ways. Seven times seven, perfect number, time perfect number. You can't fit the Apocrypha in there. There's no room for the writings of Ellen G. White. There's no room for the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, the Christian scientist, and Joseph Smith and all his stuff about the gold plates he supposedly found under a big tree stump up in up in New York State, all this stuff these people come up with and their writings. They're not Scripture. The Bible is, is thoroughly able to give you the truth in the whole way of God, so we want to deeply understand the Bible. And brethren, we in the church of God have profound understanding. I intend to preach a sermon and write articles on maybe the ten pillars of faith. There are several things that begin to think about that we are different on, that are absolutely fundamental and wonderful and, of course, you can see a lot of you where I'm going today and preaching on one of those. No other church understands the whole purpose of human existence. They don't get it. They just don't get it. Turn back to Psalm now, and let's turn to the Word of God, the Word to live by every Word of God and really believe it and have our minds and our hearts and our lives guided by it and inspired by it. And, boy, we should be inspired by it, too. Psalms, chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. King David, the man after God's own heart, said, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, I'm sorry, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, he prayed to God and sang this song, perhaps a psalm that he was singing. The moon and the stars, as he looked up at the sky at night and saw the magnificent panorama of what God had created, which you've ordained. What is man? Have you ever done that, just stood out under the stars at night and realized how small you are? I'm sure most of you have done that. I've done that again and again. 
I'll always remember doing it a number of key times. One time was when I was just 22 years old leading out a baptizing tour with Burke McNair. The previous summer I'd gone out as kind of a co-leader with Raymond McNair. This time I was in charge because he had not been out before. And we drove or driving overnight back east through Arizona and outside Tucson, somewhere on the side of a hill, we pulled off the old highway. The newer highways are nicer now, the highways 10 and I-8 and so forth. We pulled off the highway to just take a break. And I went up the road in the dark. And it was totally dark, way out from any city. No lights in the background. And looked up. And as you know, out in some parts of Texas and Arizona, the, the stars are bright at night, deep in the heart of Texas, as they say. And boy, they are, too. They are. And I just looked up and I, I silently prayed. I said, Father in heaven, I'm just 22 years old and we're going clear across this nation. Burke's never been on a tour. I'm responsible. We're going to have guns pointed at us, people yelling and threatening to kill us, which we did and which we had the previous summer. Please help us and be with us. As I looked up at the stars at night and saw the power of God. David did that probably many, many more times than I ever did, I'm sure, because he slept out all night with the herds. What is man that you're mindful of us down here, David was thinking, and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels. And the Greek or Hebrew word here is Elohim, a little lower than the gods that can be translated. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, as you see people lowered in the grave, there isn't very much glory and honor, but potentially, as he goes on to show, we are crowned with glory and honor in God's plan. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. God has made us to have authority and government. You put all things under His feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts, birds, fish, that pass through the seas. O Eternal, our Lord, how excellent is Your name. Everything You stand for in all the earth. What is man? And yet You're made in God's image. You've made Him to have dominion over the works of Your hands. Back when I was growing up in southwest Missouri... It was a mining town, and we had all kinds of big piles of rocks. There were little hills. They weren't just like 10 feet high. They were 20, 40 feet high, and great big piles. We called them chat piles, crushed rock. And as a boy, I spent dozens, maybe hundreds of hours running over the chat piles and playing games and hide-and-seek, and often in the spring, flying kites. We'd get on top of the chat pile and fly kites. And as I would sit there, I can remember that, looking up at the sky and thinking, as I got to be 8, 10, 11 years old. Here I am all alone, and there's all this, and looking up at the sky. What's it all about? Why am I here? What's going on? And I had an inquisitive mind, and I began to think about that over and over. One of my dear friends that I flew kites with, wrestled with hundreds of hours, was named Jimmy Mallet. I've told most of you that story before, but I want to use it again. Jimmy was my dear friend. And he and I used to wrestle and we used to look in to try out different jujitsu tricks. They didn't use karate and judo as much. We just called it jujitsu and we'd try these tricks on each other and wrestle all the time like little two bear cubs to have fun and test ourselves. He was a year older than me but shorter so we were about the same size and he was yet a little further in and uh, maybe maturity or whatever and yet a little shorter but I was strong for my age, so we were about evenly matched, and we had a wonderful time trying out these wrestling tricks on each other. And we often wondered about what's going on as we were out hiking or out in the chat piles and talked about it, and we would have long philosophical discussions. I had more with him than any other person growing up, I guess. 
And then we sent off to various places. The main one I can remember was a guy named Dingle. I don't remember his first name, Edward Dingle or something out in Los Angeles. Have you heard of him? He just had this mail order house and he had in his ad kind of a, like a rising sun and write to Dingle this box something, probably had a little dinky office or maybe no office. This a post office box probably. So I look back on it. I'm sure he didn't have much of an office, but I didn't know that. And he talks about learning the great secrets of life, the wisdom of the East. And write off and you'd find this. Well, you know, we weren't stupid. We rode off, so we were stupid that way. <laughs> but when we got it, we could pretty well see he was having all these thoughts, but they didn't really prove anything or mean anything necessarily. So we would write and think and pray, what's life all about? And seek for it. Finally, after years of wondering and worrying, I was up in Kansas, northern Kansas, working on a farm in the summer of 1945, just as the war ended. And they came back, and before I ever got to see him, Jimmy Mallett was up in a wrestling exhibition in, in uh, Pittsburgh, Kansas. Wild Red Berry was one of the famous wrestlers, and he had this wrestling school, and Jimmy was there and matched with an older boy. And in this wrestling exhibition, they put him with an older, heavier guy, which they shouldn't have done because his normal partner wasn't there. And the guy got him in a headlock, and then Jimmy tried what we and I had done so, so many times with each other, he lurched and kicked out and pushed away, and the other guy jerked right at that time and snapped his neck right in front of his parents, and he died. And my dad, the next morning, saw it in the paper and talked to me. I better not go through that. I might get emotional. But he, anyway, he helped me try to take it in the right way. But it hit me more than anything like that had so far in my life. And so at the funeral, I was one of the pallbearers, and as he lowered Jimmy's body down, they used to lower it right then while you were still there. You older folks will remember. Now they don't always do it right then, but they were lowering it in the ground. I thought, it really, I just thought to watch that go down and kind of peered over and watch these men and almost thought about stopping them or something, throwing dirt on him. And but I thought, no, he's dead. I don't understand this. And why did God let Jimmy die? I just couldn't understand that. Why did God let Jimmy die? And I wanted to understand. I began to seek. My uncle somehow, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, began to seek. And he began to read various books. And he got theology books from Dr. Ridpath, their Methodist minister, and from others. Magazines, tracts. Listened to different things. There was no television. So we listened to radio preachers at night. And finally he narrowed it down to two or three. And I got him to, uh, to buy in with me as my uncle. I talked him into joining me financially and buying a York Big 12 barbell set because I was going to be big and strong. You can see that. <coughs> Never worked, but he, but he did. So we lifted weights almost every night in his garage, or in, yes, just below his apartment. He could have afforded much more than an apartment, but he saved quite a bit of money and gave a lot of it to the work of later. He was one of those three men who helped save Ambassador College that Mr. Armstrong wrote about in the crisis of 48 because he and my aunt could have no children. So they just saved the money. He was very careful, very frugal. But anyway, he got me to come over, as we were all over there anyway, and go up every now and then. I want you to hear some of this. So I was already seeking, and he knew that. And we began to hear, oh, this other guy, I can't think of his name right now, the one he narrowed it down to, maybe two others. But finally it got to be Mr. Armstrong, made more sense than anyone else. And we could see he understood but even when I came to Ambassador College, I didn't fully understand. I didn't know about the Sabbath. I didn't know about the Holy Days. I didn't even know there's a church. I just knew there's a college. Some people say, you went out there to be a minister. No, there wasn't any such thing. 
No one was a minister except Mr. Armstrong. I thought all ministers were rotund uh, middle-aged men like Mr. Armstrong and Dr. Redpath. It never occurred to me I'd be a minister. <laughs> I didn't look like one, act like one, feel like one either. I certainly wasn't old enough or even thought about that remotely. I wanted to understand the purpose of human existence. And as the college years wore on and I studied the Bible, I did understand it. But finally, even after graduation, and I'd been up in Portland as the pastor in Portland, Oregon, and came back down because of a student problem that I was brought down to help solve student body was about to split, and Mr. Armstrong didn't have time to fight the battle, so he asked me to come back down. Then Mr. Armstrong began to go through it in graduate class, and I've explained that. He said, fellas, something is coming to me. It sounds like heresy, and I don't want to be a heretic, but if you can disprove it, I'll drop it, but let's look into it. So we did, and the more we studied, the more profound the understanding became, and it was absolutely wonderful. Mr. Armstrong used to say, and if you knew Mr. Armstrong, you knew he didn't normally talk like this. He said, fellas, or he'd say, brethren in the church, when we're born again, we're going to be sort of like super archangels. We'll be above the angels. He saw that in the Bible. But Mr. Armstrong normally didn't say sort of anything. You know, he was very powerful and very dogmatic. Sort of like. But finally, he began to see it went way beyond that. Way beyond that. The purpose of human existence Back in Genesis 1 is where he started, and that's where he started so many of the basic things that he came to understand right at the beginning. Back at the beginning, it says in Genesis 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. It became chaotic. Then he created, the, of course, the plants and animals, everything. And then in verse 26, verse 26 then God said, let us make man in our image, the very image of God, according to our, more than one, God the Father and God the Word, the Logos, the spokesman, who emptied himself later and became Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and everything. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, not just a man, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all the physical creation, as he goes on to describe. From the beginning, God gave man dominion, authority, power. He intended him to learn to rule and to use his mind and to have creative imagination. So this is one of the great pillars of the truth that the church of God has and only that part of the church of God which descends from one man, Herbert W. Armstrong, who came to that understanding and gave it to us. A lot of you take it for granted, but most of the people of the six and a half billion human beings on earth don't understand this. It's absolutely magnificent. So then we go to the New Testament, and here we find in Matthew chapter 6, if you turn there at this point, Matthew, brethren, chapter 6. And let's... Uh, uh, let's see, I'm getting the right to follow my numbering system here. Anyway, turn to Matthew chapter 6, which is in the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, and beginning in verse 31 in Matthew uh, chapter 6, this is called uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Therefore, don't worry. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or drink? He had been describing how people get their mind on those physical things. 
What shall we eat or drink or what will we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. He knows you need physical things. He's aware of that. But seek first. What is the supreme goal of your life above all other goals? Way above all others it ought to be. Seek first the kingdom of God. And you can't just be there because you're nice. Because you're handsome or pretty. <laughs> and His righteousness. You've got to have His character to allow Him to put His character in you. He will not let you live forever and ever and ever in His family without character, the very character of God. So above everything else, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, these physical things, shall be added. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Oh, well, are we going to pay the water bill, or how are we going to have enough, uh, you know, food, or what? can we buy a new TV, or all this stuff people get their minds on. For tomorrow will take care of its own things. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof, as the King James has it, or sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Have faith in God. Do your part and God will take care of you. But you keep your mind on the big goal and God tells us that in many, many different ways. The supreme goal, the kingdom of God. Turn back to John 3 now, if you would, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. The Jewish leaders knew that. They killed him anyway. A lot of us don't like to admit that these nice people, they look good. These great religious leaders are impressive, deep, mellifluous voices, big vocabulary. We think they must be wonderful. But some of them will try to kill us one of these days. I'm not exaggerating. I really mean that. They will. But he said, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered. He didn't really directly refer to that, but he gave him something to think about. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born you can't do that. can't crawl into your back in your mother's body and be literally born. Nicodemus sensed Jesus meant something real by this. And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, water and the Spirit, and many interpret that as being baptized, and then certainly we know being born of the Spirit is becoming Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot do that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. All of us here are flesh. Some of you are newer members, but the older members all heard us preach about or joke about the hat pin test. If you are born of the Spirit, then we could poke you with a hat pin and it wouldn't bother you because <laughs> you wouldn't be flesh. The hat pin test, you see. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. You are spirit, and spirit can't be bothered by hat pen or machine gun or anything else. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wants to, here and there, and you hear the sound. You can hear the sound of the wind whistling or whistling through the trees or whatever. And you, But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. Now, you may know it comes from the south, but you don't really know exactly where it originates. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And Jesus meant that, obviously. He wasn't playing a game. When you are born of the Spirit, you are spirit. People can't see you. 
You will be like the wind and they won't know where you came from and where you went. If you appear to them and say, this is the way, walk you in it, and then you suddenly disappear, you'll be somewhere else. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We will be spirit beings someday in the family of God. The process of born again leads to that. And again, the Protestant world talks about it. They don't understand that any more than Mickey Mouse. They don't get it. They don't understand. God has not opened their minds. But let's deeply appreciate our understanding of these things. Though turn with me to 1 John now, if you would. 1 John chapter 2. This is 1 John back near the end of the New Testament. Chapter 2. And I'm just picking up a key verse or two in chapter 2 and then going to chapter 3. He's been talking earlier about he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. As you know, First John 2, 4, you've got to walk in God's commandments. So he says in verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did Christ teach? What did Christ teach at the beginning of Christianity? Matthew nineteen seventeen. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Over and over he taught that. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. You will be in union with Christ and God. And this is the promise, eternal life. And these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing won't let anyone deceive you. And now, little children, verse 28, abide in Him, that is in Christ, that when He appears, when Christ comes again, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. You know, if we don't walk with Christ, we're going to be kind of worried at that time, frankly. We're going to realize, well, we've cut some corners. We didn't really keep the Sabbath very well. We watched a lot of crazy stuff on the Sabbath, worldly stuff. We weren't tithing faithfully. We would hide part of our income from God and not tithe on it. We would make steps to maybe say dirty things occasionally or offbeat things or tell little lies when it's convenient. We say, well, that's just a white lie. A white lie, a lie is a lie is a lie. And so on. So we make excuses, but we'd better walk and live and walk with God so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Some men get into pornography. They don't commit complete adultery but they go through lust in their minds. And some women do too. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness walks with God as a way of life, is born, and as I've explained before and will again, and please prove it, I hope you prove it, you can prove it, it's not difficult. The word for all these words, born again or begotten, is simply various forms of the same exact Greek word, genau. It always means uh, generate, G-E-N, to generate, to bring into being. You know, we have big generate, generate electric power, whatever. That's the basic idea. Different forms of genau. And you only know whether it means begotten or born by the context. That's the reason in some of these verses, the King James will say born, and the New Jerusalem Bible will say begotten. Or the New King James will say born, and maybe the Living Bible on occasion will say begotten. The same top, not kind of top Greek scholars are not the same ones, but they'll translate the same word over and over, either born or begotten, because they don't know except for the context. And if they don't know God's plan, they really don't know what it means, if you follow me. It's the same word. So here, of course, it has to mean begotten. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices a way of life uh, righteousness is begotten of Him. 
We're not yet born of God in this flesh. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, going on in chapter 3, that we should be called children of God. But brethren, most of you realize we're not yet born of God. If you think you are, I hope some of us here have a big hat pin or something. We can administer the hat pin test and see if you're already spirit or not. But he, he said uh, that, that we should be called children of God. We're begotten children. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. They don't recognize that we're begotten of God because we're not yet perfect and we're not yet doing powerful miracles. And even if we did, they might want to kill us like they did Christ. Did they recognize Christ was actually born of God? No. They killed Him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. Right now, we're children in the sense of being God's destined sons and daughters, begotten of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. And again, brethren, this book is the revelation of God's mind. This book reveals to us the ultimate purpose of life, the goal of life, and the way to get there. And there isn't any other source. And we must deeply understand that, deeply appreciate the profound things like this that are in this book. So, he tells us here, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. Like Him? We're going to be like Christ. We'll later see what Christ is like, as most of you know. For we shall see Him as He is. And we find in parts of Revelation and back in Daniel and elsewhere, men were afraid to look in Christ's face and see His full glory as the Logos. Man can't do that. But when we're born of God, we can do that. And everyone who has this hope, this magnificent hope, this magnificent goal ahead of him, that's why I was born. That's where I am headed. Everyone who has this goal, this hope, purifies himself just as he is pure. When I was in the Methodist church, I thought God was loving in a way, but I thought he was kind of like an old grandfather and he didn't want us to do these little things because he was a little sensitive and I guess God was kind of embarrassed about sex because... My parents were kind of embarrassed about sex, and my grandparent mother, uh, mother surely was in that generation, you know what I mean, and the only one who ever talked to me was my mother. My father virtually never said anything to me, and uh, that's the way it was. I remember even when Mr. Armstrong first began to teach the sex class in Ambassador College, some of the kids smiled at each other because they could see he was more embarrassed about it than they were because he grew up in an earlier generation. God's not embarrassed about anything. He made us male and female. He's not embarrassed about pornography. He made all the things that we are. He's not embarrassed about dirty jokes. He just thinks these stupid, now you'd think even evil, but you know, these poor misled human beings down here get all mixed up in their head and they don't know how to be sensible and to use his gifts that he gives us, including the gift of sex. He doesn't get hysterical when he sees someone getting drunk. He knew they would in advance. Noah got drunk. He allows it to be there, part of the obstacle course he puts so we've got to learn to use it the right way. He knew people would come put substances together and make drugs. That doesn't blow his mind. He knew that would happen. So he has to have a big mind and think of it in the right way. But God wants us to be pure, not because he's nicey-nice, but he wants us to have the kind of character and concern for ourselves and for others that we could properly live forever and not destroy ourselves, not hurt others in the process and make them miserable and make the whole kingdom of God miserable and upset and fighting and squabbling for all eternity. <laughs> That's why he wants us to learn to be good. 
to learn to use sex the right way, to learn to use dynamite the right way, not to blow up other human beings, but we can blow a tunnel through mountains and put a train tunnel through there, a highway, that's okay, and so on. If we don't hurt the environment too much, then the environmentalists get on us today. But anyway, we need to be careful to be stewards of God's creation. But you see what I mean. There's a right use for these things. As Mr. Armstrong always said, sin is not a thing. Sin is not a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon. Sin is the man who drinks a whole bottle of whiskey and blows his mind and misuses that. That's what sin is. Sin is not sex. God's first command to the young man and the young woman He said, be fruitful and multiply and have lots of kids. He said, love each other, have lots of kids. I want potential gods in my family. Embarrass God. Nothing. Just use things the right way. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. He who whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. As the King James says, sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. If you abide in Christ, if Christ lives in you, you do not. And the whole passage through here, brethren, is translated in some of the more modern translations as practice. It's implied an ongoing process does not practice sin. Whoever sins or whoever practices sin has neither seen him nor known him. It says, whoever sins has never seen him. We say, I don't know God then because I sin once in a while. Of course you do. Other scriptures tell you that don't say you have no sin. As he says back in chapter 1 here of, of uh, 1 John, uh, 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a process. That's why we grow in grace and in knowledge. We're not made perfect at once. So that's the way you can understand what it means by this throughout this entire passage. Little children, let no one deceive you, verse 7. He who practices, and here the New King James Version has it correct. They spell it out on occasion because the Greek tense means continuous, ongoing. Whoever practices righteousness, you see, is a way of life, is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins or practices sin, is of the devil. If you regularly sin, you're guided by the devil. You're not guided by God. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been, notice this key verse 9. Notice carefully, verse 9. Whoever has been begotten, as it ought to be, begotten of God, does not practice sin, for his seed And the very Greek word, look it up in a concordance or in the interlinear, the word is sperma. God is not ashamed of the male sperm. He made it. It's the thing that impregnates the female ovum and brings a human being into existence, which is magnificent in God's plan. But he puts that very word here in his inspired word. His very sperm, his very seed of God that gives the very nature of God remains in him. And that is in a true Christian. And he cannot sin... Because he's been, uh, he cannot practice sin again, as it ought to be, because he's been begotten of God. And that is the correct understanding of that. It's not that you're already born of God, because in context, he's not talking about being spirit. He's talking about us in this flesh. Because he has been begotten of God, then it continues to show the context. In this, the children of God are manifested, 
and the children of the devil. You see, in this life, how do you know? He's talking about this life. Whoever does not practice, and here he uses the word practice even in the New King James, whoever does not practice righteousness, you see, is a way of life, is not of God. And he who does not love, uh, nor is he who does not love his brother. So you've got to practice righteousness as a way of life to show that you are of God. And if you don't love your brother, you are not of God. That shows that too. People that constantly are hating others or planning to kill them or things like that. Uh, they may say they're Christians, but they're not. So it's a key thing. Practice righteousness. God puts His very seed inside of you and me, and we are begotten of God. We, to a certain extent, depending on how much we grow, how much we pray, how much we study this book and feed upon it, how much we yield to God, serve God, walk with God, talk with God, commune with God. We have the very nature of God in us. God didn't just say, I'm going to make these billy goats and, and cows down here my sons and just call them my sons. He says, no, I've made human beings in my image. I've given them the kind of mind and creative imagination that I have to a limited degree so they can understand and learn the difference between right and wrong and choose the right and resist the wrong. And then I can put my very nature in them. The very seed, the sperm of God, the seed of God comes into us and we come right out from God. And therefore we are literal sons of God. We're not just called sons of God. We're of that level of existence eventually. When we understand the whole process of being born again, it's magnificent. And we really need to understand our calling and appreciate it and think about it over and over, much and much. That is the thing we should focus on, brethren. Turn back now to Revelation chapter 1, if you would. Revelation chapter 1 at this point. And notice here uh, in verse 5, he talks about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Who is the, who is born, what is born again? Is it an emotional experience in Billy Graham's tent meeting? No. It's being born of God. It's coming right out from God. Christ was the first one, the firstborn. How are you born? From the dead. Normally you're born by a resurrection from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. God so loved us, that He gave His only begotten Son for us to reconcile us to Him that we might become His full sons someday. Profound love. God is creating a family. He wants you and me and every one of us to be literally part of a literal family someday and live together forever. And it is magnificent. Our goal, our opportunity, our calling. And He's made us, that is... When God says, I've made you, it means he's, it's His plan. Nothing can stop it. He's already done us. As long as we don't turn aside those who are faithful, He has made us kings and priests to His God. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Then it describes what Christ is like. It shows this, this big vision of this seven golden lampstands. Verse 12, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with the garment, down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. That's the description of the glory of Christ today. His feet were like fine brass refined in his furnace, shining power. And his voice is the sound of many waters. Some of you have been to the coast, 
and especially the West Coast and the Big Sur country or somewhere like that, where you hear these giant waves come, whoo! You can hear it miles away sometimes. God's voice is like the sound of rolling thunder also, those East Texas oil storms, uh, 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 windstorms. Powerful and thunderstorms. God's voice is like that, far beyond any human voice. So we understand the glory that is ahead of us if we really understand that God says what He means and means what He says. Turn back to Colossians now, uh, again, uh, chapter uh, 1 this time, Colossians. And uh, rather than chapter 3 this time, we'll turn to chapter 1 of the book of Colossians and beginning here in uh, verse 15. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him are all things, were all things created that are in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether there's thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is not dead. He is the living head of His church, wherever His true church is, who is the beginning, the firstborn. You see, we're born of God someday. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That's what this born again is talking about, not getting emotional in some tent meeting. Firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So it's a wonderful thing. And then as you see over here in uh, verse 24, I don't need to read all these verses, or I'll have time. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And brethren, we will have to go through sufferings to attain that final goal. I think you all realize that. God doesn't, just, doesn't give it to us with no trials, no tests, no preparation. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of His body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me to you to fulfill the Word of God, the mystery. And many people are fascinated. What is life all about? As I've told... Some of you in past sermons, my old Methodist grandmother used to play this piece. Ah, sweet mystery of life. Someday I'll find you. I better not try to imitate the singing. I'm not a good singer. But that's the way the song went. The mystery of life. Here it is. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but has now been revealed to His saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Most human beings don't begin to start to commence to realize they are really made in the image of God and born again has to do with us being made members of a higher level of existence throughout all eternity. They can't begin to understand that. It's a mystery to the whole world. But the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Of glory. We will be glorified someday. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus or to become like God, to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. To this end I labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. And brethren, we've got to strive for that too. We've got to do our part for that. We've got to go all out for that and think that's our goal. That's a reason for being. That's where we're headed. Let nothing turn us aside. Let nothing distract us. And be sure we do that. We have a magnificent opportunity and calling. Turn to Romans, if you would, chapter 8 at this point. Romans chapter 8, and let's begin in verse 12. Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, 
verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You're not supposed to think you've got to be like everybody else and keep up with the Joneses and be in this flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you just go to movies and watch television and drink extra beer and wine and whiskey and or drink and smoke like everybody else and cuss like everybody else, lie a little, cheat a little, do this and that like everyone. Well, you won't be there. There's no way you won't be there. You must not live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That is, you'll die the second death. But if by the Spirit, through God's Holy Spirit in you, you put to death, you've got to literally put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by, some of our brethren in past ages or past decades in the church and worldwide and elsewhere seem to have been converted but I've seen them fall away. People I loved and spent hundreds of hours with. And I don't want to mention names, but it hurt me. I've had three great deep hurts in my life. One was the death of my first wife. The other was the fact that so many of my brethren and loved ones turned aside. They just turned aside. And that hurt very, very much because it's been my whole life for over 58 years teaching the way of God and the body, the Bible and so on. But I've seen this happen. Don't let it happen to you. Keep your mind focused on that big goal. It's so easy to turn aside. But if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by, you might have God's Spirit at one point, but are you led by it? Will you study and pray and stir up the Spirit? Rekindle the flame of God's Spirit so you'll be led by that Spirit. You see, these are the sons of God. If that very seed is active in you, guiding your mind, your heart, your actions. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, as it ought to be. It is translated. In this case, the New, King, New International Version is correct. So it's the spirit of sonship, because it can rightly be rendered that. And whole teams of scholars in different translations render it that way. You have received the spirit of sonship, by whom we cry out, because God's very sperm, God's very nature has come in us, so we really can cry out, Daddy, Father. He didn't just adopt us as some lower beings. He calls them us sons and kids himself. We come right out from him. We have his nature. He is our Father. Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs, if you're joint heirs with someone, does that mean they're way up here and your reward is way down here? Doesn't sound like that, does it? No, we are joint heirs with Christ. We receive the opportunity to rule the world. We receive the opportunity, no doubt, to join later with Christ in helping rule the entire universe. We receive the opportunity to talk to God the Father and walk with Him and know Him, be part of the team of the Creator family throughout all eternity, like Christ is. And we can't fully understand that, but it's awesome. And someday we will fully understand, but as we think about it, meditate about it, pray about it, it ought to be mo the most inspiring single thing there is, frankly. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. So there it is again. Are you going to have trials and tests on the way? Some of you say, I've had trials and tests. I've had bad eyes for years, ever since I was 10 or 11 years old. And then later, in my 60s, late 60s, early 70s, I began to get bad ears. And when I don't agree with her, 
my wife tells me I have a bad attitude too. <laughs> so anyway, I'm kidding on that. But we have bad this and bad that as we get older. We think, why doesn't God keep us like when we were 21 and just filled with physical zeal? Well, He doesn't do that. And some of you young people have accidents. Your hand will get cut off. Your leg will get cut off. You'll lose your job. You'll get sick. You'll get love sick on some girl and then she'll ditch you for someone else. You think, ooh, my life is at an end. No, it's not. Go down the street, start all over. <laughs> It'll work out, but you've got to keep your mind on the big picture and have the, the, the actual goal of God in your mind. So if we suffer with Him, we shall be glorified together. Glorified together? What kind of glory have we just seen that Christ has? We're going to share in that same kind of glory. Does God say what He means? It means what He says? He does, brethren. I deeply believe that with every fiber of my being, and I hope you do too. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are we going to be persecuted a lot more in five or seven or ten years than we are now? Yes. If we do the work, we will. Are you ready? Yes. For some of you. No, for some of you. You're not ready. You'll get discouraged. You'll drop out. I didn't know it was going to lead to this. Well, it will lead to this. It led to that with Jesus Christ. It led to that with the Apostle Paul. It led to that with Peter and James and John and all the apostles and all of God's servants down through the time. So God tells us that. The sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, the glory, the magnificent goal we have ahead of us of becoming full members of God's family. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It's as though the whole world is crying out. Human beings are destroying the water, polluting the water, polluting the air, destroying the plants, the ecology, destroying each other. As you watch, if you watch especially BBC, if you watch a lot of the American news channels, it's awful. All you see is Britney Spears and, and, uh, problems or whatever, some of these things. It's just ridiculous, these Hollywood people and people sometimes I've never heard of, and they go on and on about them. O.J., O.J., or whoever it is. But often the BBC will give you a little bit of the big stuff that's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq and Sudan and Darfur and Nigeria and all these things that are happening in all the world. It's groaning, suffering, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed and help straighten it out. And that involves you and me to work with Christ, under Christ, to bring a kind of genuine peace and prosperity and joy that the world has never known, never known. And we have that opportunity. So the whole creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God wants us to be there and straighten it out. Better skip on a little faster here. He says down in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good. Now, brethren, many Protestants, I've heard them, you know, in the locker rooms and, and the Zyder concrete pipe plant on occasion to these outside working people, nice people, they don't understand. All things work together for good, they say. Not necessarily for them now. <laughs> They're learning lessons, so I suppose in the end it'll work together for good. But notice what it does say. All things work together for good for whom? For those who are called according, uh, who love God, who love God. Do you love God? This is love, the love of God, that we keep His commandments, plural, all of them. First John 5, 3. This is God's love. So most of those people don't love God. They don't know God. They don't keep His commandments. So they have horrible things. Did all things work for good for those Jews 
who didn't know God, who didn't believe Christ, and were herded into the gas chambers. And as I saw myself with my own eyes, the meat hooks, where they used to tie their hands behind their neck and hang them up like this, and they gurgled to death. You see this, the remains, the skeleton, the big bins, or whatever you'd call them, with the little kids' shoes are piled up. It brings tears to your eyes. That was awful. It didn't look for, work for good right then and right there. These things are going to happen again and much worse this time. God shows that. But it's worked for good, I guess, in the end that people have to learn lessons. Their own way doesn't bring happiness. Human beings and their government, their religion, their way of life will never bring happiness. But God, if He calls you and you love God and are called according to His purpose, then your life will take on meaning. He watches over you and He causes things to work out for good far more immediately and far more obviously, put it that way. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What's Christ like? His face shines like the sun. Or to be like that. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Does Christ have younger brothers who are sheep and cows and goats and chickens? No. Again, if Christ is really our brother, then we're like Christ, really like Christ. My sons are like each other. They're all fully human. Fully human. So we've got to understand that, brethren. That's a magnificent understanding of our opportunity to be members of God's family, fully made in His image in every way. And we want to deeply appreciate that. Turn back to 1 Corinthians, if you would, at this point, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15. And this, as you know, is the resurrection chapter. And uh, we... Uh, cannot begin to read all of this because it goes, of course, on and on so long. But I want to read a little bit of it. He talks about here in verse 40, there are celestial bodies, that is, heavenly bodies, and terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial, the heavenly bodies, is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. What is that? It's a lesser glory. And another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another in glory, so also is the resurrection from the dead. In God's kingdom, depending upon how all out you went, how far you gave your life to God, you will receive a greater reward. Some of you say, well, I didn't get to go to Ambassador College, and you did. And that's true. I didn't get to do this. Some of you were called later than me in life. Does God expect you to do exactly the same way as me and Dr. Nail and Mr. Ames in every phase of your life? No. God understands where you are. So you have to also think and bear in mind. I didn't have this in my notes, but I want to help this put this in to help you understand. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Luke 12, verse 48. He who did not commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. But everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed to him, they will ask the more. That's a very important verse. Mark that. Luke twelve forty eight. God is fair. If you've been called at a younger age, if you've been given a sharper mind and greater ability to begin with, God demands more of you. If you're called later in life, you've got to do the best you can in each case, you see, with what you've been given to do with. God's judgment is fair in every way. But star differs from star in glory. Verse 49 now, back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, As we have borne the image of the man of the dust, or human, 
we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall all sleep. Normally, except we live to the very end, we're all going to die. But we shall all be changed. So uh, everyone won't sleep, but some will be changed. In a moment of the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Every one of us, and made like God. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. When we are born of God and given at that time a spirit body. So again, these are magnificent opportunities that are ahead of us. But we've got to be careful that we understand. We've got to be careful that we don't take it lightly. Turn with me back to Jeremiah, if you would, brethren. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts and the ever-living one. You've got to learn to absolutely trust in God and have faith and courage. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, and so forth. Verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Eternal, search the heart. I test the mind. God has got to know where you stand, and He will not play games with any of you. Any of you brethren around the world, he won't play games with me or you. I know that. You ought to know that. Be sure you do. I test the mind, even to every man, according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God knows our heart. He knows our mind. He's testing us, testing us, watching. Do we really mean it? Do we seek first his kingdom or do we just come and sit in church and play funny games? Is it just something we grew up in and we, that's all we know and we just kind of go along? Or do we give our lives to God and consider that our old life is buried in, in, the, in the water? Turn back, if you would, here at this point to Psalms chapter 7. Psalms chapter 7 and verse 8. The people judge, oh, the eternal shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O eternal, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God, what? Tests. God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. So God tests us all. He's working with us. He's trying to see what we're made of. Will we really go out, all out? Do we really mean it? Is God's kingdom really first in our minds and hearts above everything else? That is, everything else. Notice chapter 33, Psalm 33, verse 10. The eternal brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Oh, this wonderful, great big counselor, you know, uh, United Nations. <laughs> Do they have all the answers? Well, we know that now for about 50 years. They just blunder, blunder, blunder. They have all these corruptions and these scandals of people ripping us off for billions of dollars. Their counsel comes to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the eternal stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the eternal. Now, there have been very few nations, very few times that have had that. And the people whom he's chosen as his own inheritance. The eternal looks from heaven. God watches us. He's looking down. He sees all the sons of men. 
He sees Mr. and Mrs. Ames and Mrs. Murray and Mr. Murray over here. He sees, you know, different ones of you over here and watches you. Better not name too many names and get in trouble. <laughs> he sees Jerry. I know him. I'll pick on him. Jerry Reddleston and different ones of you. He sees us. He watches us. He sees the sons of men from the place of his habitation. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? In the Bible, the mind of God. He fashions our hearts individually. He works with us, works with us, tests us, tries us, rebukes and chastens us, sees how we act. Will we carry on? Will we seek His kingdom throughout every trial, every test, every sickness, every persecution? Will we hang in there? Do we realize how magnificent it is? Are we so quick to give up and turn aside? He fashions our hearts individually. He considers all their works. So let's really understand that calling that we have, brethren, and how important and how magnificent it is. Turn back to John 17 now. And this is one I often use, so I will try not to spend too much time on that, but I sometimes end my sermon with that, which I'm not going to on this occasion. But this is Jesus' real prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer, the only complete prayer of Christ in the Bible. John chapter 17, just before He died, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You as You've given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You've given Him. And this is eternal life. Notice this, brethren, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you come to know God, serve God, walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, that is eternal life, you see. That is that kind of fellowship, that kind of contact, that kind of life that you just walk right on over with into eternity. Knowing God fully, that is eternal life. I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together, notice, with the same glory which I had with you before the world was. Here was the Christ, the Logos, who said, Let there be light. And He created the, the, the dry land out from the oceans and everything else He did. Brought man into existence. The one who walked and talked with Adam and Eve. Who walked with Abraham who walked with Moses and parted the Red Sea, led them through the Red Sea and out from the armies of, 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 of Egypt and all the other things that he did down through time. Miracle after miracle, power after power. That great God, give me back that same power, that glory, which I had with you before the world was. Jesus prayed. He says, then, verse, then he prayed for his disciples, as you'll see in the next several verses. And finally, you come down to verse 20. He said, I do not pray for these alone, for these fellows here, my disciples, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That's you and me. We believe on Christ through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I and you. That they may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave with me, I have given them. Not some lesser glory. That same glory that Christ had with the Father from eternity. that they all may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, verse 23, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So Christ's prayer will be answered for those who are faithful 
for those who seek God's kingdom above all else, in spite of trials, in spite of coming persecutions, in spite of everything else, it will happen. Notice now, brethren, back in Hebrews. Let's turn now back to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Verse 5. For he has not spoken of the world to come of which we speak, and subjection to the, or put the world in subjection to angels. The coming world is not put under angels, but one testified in a certain place, What is man that you're mindful of him? And he quotes David back in Psalm 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, Paul writes, under inspiration. But now we do not yet see all put under man. So God tells us that we are made a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, and you have set all things under his feet. Here we read in verse 8, quoting from Psalm 8, he's put everything, and some of the commentaries point out that that word all is normally interpreted, and sometimes interpreted, the universe. Everything that is. Everything that is in God's plan is put under us, including Pluto, Saturn, Alpha Centauri, the furthest stars and the closest stars in the entire universe. So in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under man. And his plan, everything, the entire universe. But now we do not yet see all things under him, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, he had to come and die for us that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, Jesus Christ, and bringing notice many sons to glory. Many sons will be glorified to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Even Christ had to go through horrible sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. That's what we're being right now. That's why we have the trials and tests. God can't just let us float into his kingdom and take it lightly and cheaply throughout all eternity. He has to work with us, work with us, work with us. Rebuke and chase in every son he loves. Shake us up. Keep us humble. Or we'll get so vain we won't obey our creator. So both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing praise to you. So brethren, God has made us to be his full sons and to inherit the entire universe. And then we find at the end of this book, back in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, he starts out how God will rebuke and chasten every son he loves, fashion us, mold us, work with us. And finally, in verse 18, Hebrews 12, verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain, which may be touched, that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest. You're not just come to some big mountain for getting a physical letter of the law covenant now, Paul's writing, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so much those that those who heard it begged that the word not be spoken. These human carnal Israelites were scared to death. The whole mountain was shaking. Fire and brimstone were coming down. The voice of God reverberating across the plain like rolling thunder. And they were scared. Even Moses said, I'm terrified. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, glorified spirit choirs and angels to help to serve. 
magnificent glorified procession coming in and out of Jerusalem and, and the world tomorrow and all the other things that are going to happen. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, our name must be there. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We are going to join in that resurrection in that magnificent family, the family of God, the spirit essence, the mind, the personality, now given spirit bodies of Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Joseph, who had to be put down, as you know, for 13 years from age 17 to 30 and wait on God all that time. We're going to be able to talk to Moses and work with him, to Samuel, to David, to Elijah and Elisha, to Peter and James and John, the Apostle Paul, to faithful Sarah and Ruth and Deborah the prophetess and all the other faithful men and women of God down through time, to chat with them, to talk with them, to work with them in bringing about a beautiful civilization, a whole world based on love and joy and peace because people will be taught by us and taught by Christ through us God's law, how to love God, how to love one another, how to humble ourselves and not get our feelings hurt and get mad at people and want to hate and kill like people do today and to lay down our lives for one another. So the degree we lay down our lives now, to the degree we learn to live that way, to the degree we here in the office learn to interact and love each other, forgive each other, get over our little hurts, to see the big picture way beyond all this petty stuff we get into sometimes and say, I'm going to become a full member of the family of God. That's my goal. That's where I'm headed. I'm going to let nothing distract me. Let nothing turn me aside. We've got to do that, brethren, to have that kind of glory, that kind of power, and that kind of opportunity to help bring peace to the people that are butchering each other all through Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Central and South America, and all over the world, as you know, and they will be doing it soon in Europe and America and the Great Tribulation. So in spite of our trials, in spite of our tests, our persecutions, we must keep our mind and our eyes on the supreme goal, the big goal, the reason for our existence. And we should rejoice in our hearts as we think about it. Yes, we've got to go through hell and brimstone, so to speak. We know that. But in our hearts, we should rejoice, brethren, that we really are made in the image of the great God that causes the sun to shine that causes the birds to sing, that causes all the beauty, the cry of a little baby, every beautiful, every good, and every perfect gift. He is our Father. He is our God. Rejoice that we are really made in His image, and we can become His real sons. And so lift up your heads and rejoice, all of us. We have a magnificent goal. We have a magnificent calling, and it's coming soon. And let's drive toward that with every fiber of our being, and walk with God more closely, more closely, ever more closely, now and forever.